At the heart of Christian faith is the story of a death and a resurrection. And then a third movement in the symphony, Jesus' ascension, his departure in which he passes his mantle to the community of the church. To understand Christian faith, then, and Scripture's library from a Christian perspective, we have to understand this three-part story, putting the emphasis in the right places, playing a balanced, artful version of the symphony as a whole. For the author of the Gospel of John, these movements increase in importance as the symphony unfolds. The death is important, and the resurrection even more so. The resurrection is important, and the ascension, the birth of the church, even more so. John even includes a line where Jesus tells his followers that they will do even greater things than he has done. But the symphony does begin with the death, or rather, with the life that so threatens the powers that be, including the greatest military power of the day, the Roman Empire, that they maneuver to have Jesus killed. And so that's where we'll focus in this episode. What did they find so threatening about this unarmed peasant rabbi that they'd have him executed publicly up on a cross for all to see? This isn't a whodunit. We know it was the Romans and their collaborators, the powers that be. But the question is, why? I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. Look how the Gospel of John tells the story. The rationale for having Jesus arrested and killed makes a disturbing kind of sense, like a mirror in which we can recognize ourselves. The argument goes like this. This Jesus, this itinerant rabbi, is attracting a lot of attention. The people are responding to his healing and teaching, these astounding signs he's giving them. They're beginning to believe that he might be the one the great deliverer. And the Roman occupiers, they see the crowds, the look in their eyes. It won't be long before they suspect an insurrection is coming. And they'll crack down on all of us, destroy the temple, destroy our nation, all we've worked for, all we are sworn to protect. And did you hear the latest? They're saying he raised a man, Lazarus, from the dead. We know what that means. In the prophet Ezekiel, It is written, You shall know that I am God when I open your graves. Some will mistake this rumor about Lazarus for an opening of a grave, a signal that God is about to vindicate the house of Israel, vanquish the Romans, restore the nation on your own soil, as Ezekiel puts it. No doubt some will foolishly take up arms, and the Romans will destroy us. Listen, it's better for the people to have one man die for them than to have the whole nation destroyed. And there it is. That's the argument. 
Under the circumstances, it makes a certain kind of sense. It's the inner logic of scapegoating. Destroying one or a few, allegedly for the sake of preserving the nation, the community as a whole. Sound familiar? The dynamics of scapegoating are everywhere. From grade school playgrounds to high school locker rooms, from the workplace to politics, family life to international conflict, pop culture to genocide. Vilify the one or the few in order to save the many. Sacrifice a minority for the sake of preserving or restoring greatness. It's a compelling, permanent temptation in human life, and it replicates itself again and again, like a virus. They're scapegoating me, so I'm gonna scapegoat them. Fair is fair. And after all, it is true, the Roman armies are overwhelming and brutal. We've learned that over a hundred years now of occupation. The people just might mistake this troublesome rabbi for God, the deliverer, the one prophesied by Ezekiel. Just a little later in John's story, in the next chapter, the crowds who come out on what we now call Palm Sunday, they come to see Jesus, John says, but also to see Lazarus, the one reportedly raised from the dead, as if to confirm with their own eyes that what Ezekiel said has now at last come to pass. And such crowds surely will catch the attention of the Romans. So, better to have one man die for the people than the whole nation destroyed. That's the argument. And then, the author of John does something really quite extraordinary, contending that God is going to co-opt this argument, transforming and reversing this terrible logic, the logic of scapegoating, into the quite different logic of redemption. In effect, God will say, yes, it is better that one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed, but not in the cynical, scapegoating way you intend. Jesus will serve as the scapegoat, or rather, and here's the key move, as the Lamb of God to be sacrificed at Passover. For John, Jesus' death happens on the day the Passover lamb is killed. Jesus is the Lamb of God. But remember, in the book of Exodus, the Passover lamb isn't a scapegoat or a sin offering, a sacrifice for our sins. No, the blood of the Passover lamb protects the enslaved Israelites from death and thereby initiates their journey of liberation, their exodus from enslavement in Egypt. John is saying, in other words, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, will do the same. It's that old Exodus song, we might say, but in a different key. God is going to enter the divisive, exclusionary logic of scapegoating and transform it into the unifying, inclusive logic of a Passover writ large, a logic of liberation, of freedom, of life with and in God, loving God and neighbor. 
a new exodus from bondage and death, a new exodus for everyone. John puts it this way, Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. John loves dramatic irony, and this may well be the ultimate irony of them all. God will expose and transform the ugly, narrow logic of scapegoating, sacrificing one for the many, into a beautiful, broad logic of redemption. Yes, one will die for the sake of all, but the role of the one, the supposed scapegoat, the child of God will play that role, and on the third day, rise again, so that in the end, no one will perish, all will be saved, gathered into one as the dispersed children of God. You can find the same dramatic, ironic pattern in the object of the cross itself. The worst thing in the world, at least from a Jewish point of view in those days, an instrument of imperial torture and terror, a means of execution for all to see and be intimidated. This is what happens to those who oppose the mighty empire. This thing, God will transform this thing, the worst of the worst, into an instrument of redemption and new life. A means of proclamation, a sign for all to see and be encouraged, as if to say, the God of love will co-opt and remake even the worst we can do into part of our redemption, our liberation from death-dealing ways. God will play the role of the scapegoat. God will die and then put death to death. For God is the resurrection and the life. Remember what Jesus says to Mary, Lazarus's sister? Lazarus has just died, and Mary says to Jesus, if you had only been here earlier, he'd still be alive. And Jesus says to her, don't worry, I am the resurrection and the life. The idea here is that Jesus isn't just someone who can perform resurrections. Rather, Jesus is resurrection. Jesus is life, the one reality against whom death cannot and will not prevail. Strike resurrection and life down, and it will rise. That's what resurrection does. And for John, that's who Jesus is. In one of his Sabbath poems, Wendell Berry puts it this way. The stem bent, pent in seed, grows straight and stands. Pain breaks in song, surprising the merely dead. Graves fill with light like opened eyes. He rests in rising. (laughs) 
Like springtime wildflowers pushing up through the decay on a forest floor, Jesus' signature move is resurgence, renaissance, resurrection. No bonds of death can hold him. He rests in rising. This new exodus is the last liberation, the liberation from death itself and from fear of death. Remember, when Lazarus emerges from his tomb, wrapped in bands of cloth suitable for a corpse, Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Russian art collector commissioned Henri Matisse to paint some large canvases to adorn the main staircase of the collector's home in Moscow. Matisse painted a few options, and in the end, the collector accepted one monumental work depicting dance and another depicting music. He rejected a third option, a bucolic image of bathers in a river, a scene, we might say, depicting paradise. Years later, rather than throwing this third painting out, Matisse returned to it, reworking it, remaking it. In the meantime, the world had become engulfed in the Great War, later to be known as World War I, and the pervasive atmosphere in Europe of violence, loss, and brutality changed Matisse's approach to his subject. Influenced by the emerging artistic style of Cubism, with its geometrical fragments and multiple angles of vision, Matisse transformed Bathers by a River from a bucolic paradise to a portrait of humanity's fall away from paradise, echoing the story of the Garden of Eden in the Book of Genesis. If we read the painting from left to right, the background changes from lush greenery to a gray wasteland. And likewise, the human figures, left to right, become more and more uneasy, haunted, and haunting. The last figure on the right confronts the viewer directly, almost stepping out of the frame toward us. A hazy charcoal cloud hovers beside the figure's pale, featureless face, and at the center of the scene, slithering up from below, is a telltale serpent. The painter's earlier versions featured a lovely blue river, but in the final version, Matisse transformed it into a stark, vertical, pitch-black band, the same color as the cloud beside the human figure's head, and the serpent, the same color as that ghostly face, the color of bone. Matisse is clearly using the tropes from the story of Genesis to explore the theme of devastation, and vice versa, using the theme to explore the biblical story. This becomes most clear if we look not only at the final painting, but also at the drafts that led up to it. What began as a pastoral scene in pastel colors ends in a stark ash and gray portrait of ruin. As the Great War took its toll, 
Matisse co-opted his initially idyllic scene, transforming it into a meditation on humanity's exile from Eden. Paradise remade into a wasteland. And in the Gospels, we might say, we find the same strategy of co-option, but in the other direction. A wasteland, Golgotha, the cross, remade into redemption, freedom, the tree of life. The divine artist lays down a new vision, reworks the design, not disposing of the original canvas, but on the contrary, preserving it, redeeming it. For John, this is what God does. This is who God is. God rests in redemption. God rests in rising. The Roman cross, our constant scapegoating, such things are no match for the maker of heaven and earth. God repaints our portrait of dust and ashes into a new monumental picture, setting before us at the center of the sanctuary, an instrument of death now remade into a tree of life, and a wasteland of death, the ruins of war, now remade into a new creation. The symphony of God, the transformative, redemptive music of the resurrection and the life. Jesus, Wendell, and Henri is a mini-series by Strange New World, a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music is by Pablo J. Garman, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. And if you'd like to go deeper, SALT has devotionals for Lent based on the work of Wendell Berry and Henri Matisse, which include more details, activities, links to the paintings, and more. You can find them both in the store at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.